Last week, I mentioned the question, what's wrong with the world today and different answers people might give. It's interesting that pretty much anyone you talk to will say there's something wrong with the world today. No one looks around at the, the disease and sickness, the, the violence, the wars, the crime, the, the suffering, the brokenness, the death, and says, yeah, this seems exactly the way things are supposed to be. Instead, people say, this doesn't seem like it's how things are supposed to be. And yet, if what we're told today, if evolution is true, then this is exactly the way things are supposed to be. There's not any other world in which we could exist. And yet, there's something in us that says, this isn't right. And that's because of what the Bible tells us, that the world that we see today is not God's original good creation, but instead, it's the result of man's sin. So you would take your Bibles, open up once again to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. This week we'll start in verse 8. Last week we looked at Adam and Eve's sin as they were led as Eve was deceived by the serpent, and they took the fruit that God had told them not to eat of, and they ate. And in verse 7, we, we saw an initial kind of consequence. And in verses 8 to the end of the chapter, we, we see the, the rest of what happened, the fallout from the fall. In the verses 8 to 13, we see the confrontation between God and man. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The, the, the language there, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, seems to indicate that this was the normal occurrence. It's most likely evening being described with the cool of the day. And it seems if God in, in some way came down and, and had fellowship with Adam and Eve, and yet here, when they heard the sound, they hid themselves. And in verse 9, then the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's interesting as you look through this passage that God primarily talks to Adam and Eve with the use of questions. And I think many ways he does that to give them an opportunity to confess, to admit, to have them come clean. He's not asking these questions because he doesn't know the answer. When he asks Adam, where are you? It's not as if he didn't know exactly where Adam was. He's trying to draw out from Adam and Eve what's going on. And I think it's interesting he does this with Adam and Eve, but not with the serpent. If you were here a few weeks ago, you know that the serpent, I think, is really a representation of, of Satan, that Satan somehow was using the serpent to get this across. And for Satan, there is no possibility of repentance and redemption. Yet for Adam and Eve, there is. And so God's trying to get them to see their sin. God's trying to get them 
to understand what's going on. So for example, in verse 11, when he said, who told you that you were naked? He knows no one told him that. What happened? Adam came to realize that because he now had shame. He now had guilt. He knew he had sinned, and that led him then to a recognition of his current state. No one had to tell him this. This realization came upon himself. And yet, as Adam and Eve respond to God, it becomes pretty clear they're not quite ready to fess up yet. When God asks Adam, where were you? Where are you? Adam's response in verse 10 was, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. As I mentioned, verse 8 seems to indicate that this was a regular occurrence. Every other time God had come to the garden, was Adam naked? Yeah. This, this was no change. So why all of a sudden is he hiding? It's not because he's naked. It's because he now understands the significance of what he's done. And it's interesting, as we see his response there, he, he describes it as one of fear. I was afraid. I think probably because he understood that he had guilt and therefore deserved God's judgment. And then when God questions him, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And, and God can't really get any more clear there. As I read that, I think of sometimes when I interact with my children. What did you do? This. What did I just tell you not to do? This. God comes to Adam and says, I told you, don't eat of this tree. Is that what you did? And what's Adam's response? Well, yeah, but it wasn't really my fault. What's he say immediately? Well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So yeah, I ate it, but I'm not really the one who's at fault here. I'm the victim. The woman gave me this fruit. And in fact, you gave me the woman. So in many ways, he's shifting all the responsibility from himself to Eve and to God. And Eve, in response in verse 13, rightly acknowledges she was deceived, but seems to indicate in her mind, perhaps that somehow excuses her. The serpent deceived me and I ate. As we mentioned last week, in the sin that was committed, there was a, a turning on its head of God's creation design. And instead of man leading the woman and together them leading creation, instead creation came to the woman and deceived her, who then gave to the man. And, and here, Eve, rather than being in her rightful role over the created order, allows the serpent to deceive her, and she eats. And as we see Adam and Eve respond to sin, in many ways, I think we can see the, the way that we tend to deal with sin. Back in verse 7, as we saw last week, what happens as soon as their eyes are opened? Well, now they realized they were naked and tried to cover themselves. And back in chapter 2 and verse 25, it mentions they were naked and they didn't have any shame. And so now there's a shame. Now there's a recognition. Now there's a sense, I need to hide what I have done. And when we sin, there's that tendency to recognize there's now shame I have 
and I want to conceal it. I want to hide it. And perhaps I want to find some way to cover it myself. And so in fig leaves, pursuing self-righteousness, thinking perhaps religious ritual might be able to deal with my sin. Then I mentioned in verse 10, Adam experiences fear, and I think it's a fear of judgment. Because what had God told Adam and Eve? In the day you eat it, you will die. And so I think, what would Adam be expecting right now? I'm going to die. And I deserve it. I have guilt. And therefore there is judgment. And what's the response? To flee. To run away. To try to hide. To try to think somehow I can avoid the consequences of my sin. And one of the sad realities is that Adam and Eve, rather than loving God's presence as it comes to the garden, instead, now they fear it. Because there's an alienation between man and God. And then finally, as we understand our guilt, we seek to excuse it. We take even God's good gifts at times. Because the woman that God gave to man, was that a good gift? It was a very good gift. It wasn't good for man to be alone. So God made him a helper that was suitable for him. And now what God had made was very good. And this good gift that God gave to Adam, Adam misused it and then sought to blame God for the consequences. Perhaps in our day, we may not say the woman you gave me, but we might say something like, well, God, you made me this way. And that's why I think this way. That's why I act this way. That's why I have these sinful desires. You made me this way. Or it's my family. It's the upbringing I have. It's my parents. And anytime we blame circumstances, who are we ultimately blaming? God. He's behind all of those things ultimately. It's very clear in this passage. God takes no responsibility for Adam's sin. When Adam says, it's the woman you gave me, it becomes very clear that's not the problem. The problem, Adam, was the choice that you made. The problem, Adam, was that you did not obey me. And so in verses 14 to 19, we find the consequences for sin. Ultimately, we find the curse. God begins with the serpent. Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. It's interesting as he starts off, because you have done this, it helps us to see that when God pronounces his judgments, he does so in a righteous way. He's not just willy-nilly laying things down. It's clear, you did this, and here's the response. And there is a kind of fittingness to the judgment. In part, what did the serpent, Satan through the serpent, try to do? Try to get Eve to eat of the fruit. And so now he is going to eat. He's going to eat dust. He's going to experience shame and humiliation. And in this verse, I think we see that Man's sin brings about a curse on the animal kingdom. 
seems there is a cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field, that there is a curse on them and yet the serpent bears a greater curse. And perhaps there is even a, a change in the nature of the, the snake or the serpent because now it's on his belly. So in the past, did he walk in some capacity? And, and many people say, well, that's crazy. That would never happen. And yet it seems that's the best way to understand what's being said here. And in some way, God's original creation is now being transformed in such a way that now instead he goes on his belly and experiences the humiliation of eating dust all the days of his life. Certainly we see in Romans 8, the fact that God points to creation now being under the curse because of man's sin. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected. And I think to him who subjected there is God. There is now a curse that the created realm bears because of man's sin. Yet in verse 15, we find seemingly perhaps some measure of hope. Imagine you're Adam and Eve. You know you're in trouble. And you now hear God beginning to pronounce judgments. And in verse 15, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. And you might immediately, if you're Adam and Eve, begin to think, whoa, wait. So we're not in the same boat? That in the sin, what did the woman do? She placed herself with the serpent. She took his side. And yet now, she's at enmity. Now there's a, a, she's on the other side, which seems to indicate all hope is not lost. And between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and now she's going to have offspring. Now she's going to have seed. And so that death is not at least coming today, at least not fully. There's actually going to be some offspring that she has, which means apparently both Adam and Eve are going to, to live beyond this. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And in this passage, we see a, a conflict. And, and now in many ways, what we see in the rest of Genesis is this tale of, of two seeds. You have the seed of the woman many ways represents God and God's purposes and God's plans. And then you have the seed of the serpent. We talked about a few weeks ago as, as Jesus looked at certain people and said, you're of your father, the devil, that those who live in rebellion against God. In fact, we see it in the very next chapter in many ways, as Cain and Abel set themselves up in a sense in one line or the other. There's now enmity. And yet the final phrase is not between the offspring. The final phrase is between the woman's offspring and the serpent. Because again, this is not just a serpent, this is Satan. And what's going to happen? There's going to be an attack from both of them. Both of them will bruise the other. He will bruise you on the head. You will bruise him on the heel. It becomes pretty clear. One of those is worse than the other. You get an injury on your foot, it's very painful. Injury on your head, it's a lot more serious. 
And that's why, even though it's the same word, I think translations that, that are trying to get some of the significance maybe are right in saying things like, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Because certainly, the attack against Satan is a definitive one, whereas the attack against the woman's offspring is less painful. Then in verse 16, God's judgment against the woman. The woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Seems there's at least two areas in which she bears the consequences of sin. The first is in childbearing. And now, the childbearing that in the past would have been purely joyful is instead painful. And I do not dare to try to describe the level of pain. But I think anyone who's gone through it would say it is a very painful experience. And for much of history, a very dangerous experience. And many women died in childbirth. And this wonderful blessing of God to be able to have offspring, because this was God's blessing. Remember, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And now this blessing has been tainted by sin. And so now there is pain in childbirth. And then secondly, her marriage is affected. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, there are some who try to say desire there is, is some sense of sexual desire, the idea that uh, women who just couldn't live without men, they're constantly pursuing that. And some would point to a, a word that's used in Song of Solomon. But I think the, the better way to understand it is when this word is used in the very next chapter. In chapter 4 and verse 7, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Chapter 4 and verse 7, so you can see this. Hear God talking to Cain. It says, if you do well, would not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. That's basically the same language that's used back in chapter 3 and verse 16. What does it mean that sin's desire is for you? And it seems pretty clear it's a desire to control you, to rule you, to master you. Sin wants to master you, Cain. And in turn, you need to master it. So I think when God says the woman's desire will be for your husband, that now rather than gladly and joyfully following her husband's lead, she's going to have a desire to dominate him, to control him, to rule over him. And so now there's conflict between the man and the woman. And that second phrase, he will rule over you, that certainly does not mean now man, men should try to dominate women. It's not some kind of command. It might simply be saying, yet still God's created order will, will be in place. Man will still be the head. I think there's probably some indication that the man, perhaps rather than exercising the kind of godly leadership that he was designed to exercise, will far too often move into a harsh and domineering kind of, of leadership. And so we don't have headship 
coming into play here any more than we have childbearing coming into play here. Instead, what we have is God's original intentions, God's original good gifts being perverted, being twisted, and now coming not just with joy, but with pain and conflict. In verse 17, God begins to speak to Adam. And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, I don't think we should take this to mean never listen to your wife. I think the point here being, you said she gave you the fruit. You're supposed to lead, and certainly you should never follow her in sin. So this is no excuse for you. You were wrong in doing this. Instead, you should have spoken to her. You should have led her, but you instead followed the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Here's the result. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it, you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust, you shall return. That he will experience pain like the woman, that he as well will now have frustration in his eating, a fitting punishment for having wrongly eaten eaten the fruit. There is a curse now on creation. That in the past, I believe we'd say there were no thorns and thistles. That God's creation, yes, needed cultivation, yes, needed caring, but if Adam worked the way he should have, creation would have followed what he did. And yet now, as he tried to work the ground and to cultivate the ground, it's not following him. Thorns and thistles are coming up and frustrating him. There's an unruliness to the created world that now, rather than it living in submission to man as God's vice regent, it serves as an enemy. There's conflict between man and the created world. And just like the woman, Adam's gift, his joy to be able to work, to be able to provide, to be able to enjoy food is now frustrated. It's now painful. It's now difficult and hard. It's through sweat. It's through difficult labor that he will eat. And I think both of these point to the fact that that God's place for the man and for the woman, for the woman it was orientation towards the home and towards her marriage. And now there's there's corruption in that realm. The place in which she should have found joy and happiness and satisfaction. Instead, she finds pain and frustration. That for the man, as he is working in this world, as God designed him to work, to be able to, to build and to cultivate and to grow and to provide for himself and for his family, that now he will experience frustration and pain. That the buildings he build, he builds will, will break down and fall apart. That the technology that he develops will become obsolete. The designs he creates will not be able to be carried out. That there will be ongoing disillusionment and setback and unfinished tasks. That work was good and it's still good and yet now it's marred by sin. And ultimately, they will experience the death that God said they would experience. I mentioned last week 
Satan says you won't surely die. And in one sense, they didn't die immediately. But in another sense, they did. Because in the Bible, spiritual death is man's separation from God. And what do we see in this passage? And now there's an alienation between God and man. That Adam and Eve died spiritually. And as well, now their bodies began the process of decay and death. And so just what God had said would happen came true. In verses 20 to 24, we find the conclusion to this account. And in this conclusion, we find, first of all, I think a continued word of hope. I mentioned in most of what we saw, it was curse. It was bad news. And yet there was that message in verse 15. Yes, this serpent, Satan, one day, the seed of the woman will crush his head. And how does Adam respond? I think he responds with faith and repentance. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. She's Eve because she's going to have offspring. What God said would happen will come true. And Adam and naming her, I think, is, is believing God's promise. And I think as well, I say it's repentance. Because what have we said the act of naming is? It's an act of authority. It's an act of headship. And Adam's once again taking his place and accomplishing what God called him to do. To be the head of his wife and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so he names her Eve, the mother of all the living. And then God acts in verse 21. Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, you may have never thought of this before. There actually is at least a possibility that the language there is not so much garments of skin as garments that were on the skin. That it could be this is not actually animal skin, but it's a linen garment that, that lies on the skin. I'm inclined to think it is a garment of skin. Certainly, as you read through the rest of the Pentateuch, it becomes very clear the only way to deal with sin is through death and blood. But even if you don't take that, what is very clear is what Adam and Eve thought they could do in dealing with their sin failed. And they needed God to do something on their behalf. They created coverings for themselves, but those coverings would not work. And so God instead offers them something. He offers them a covering. He makes something for them that they are unable to do for themselves because salvation is from the Lord. And yet the consequences are still there. Verse 23, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. As we pointed out last week, yes, in one sense, they now know good and evil. So in one sense, we can say they're like God. And yet in another sense, it's very clear they are not like God. As one commentator says, rather than experiencing bliss, they encounter misery. Rather than sitting on a throne, they are expelled from the garden. Rather than new prerogatives, they experience only 
a reversal. The couple not only fail to gain something they do not presently have, but they lose what they currently possess. Unsullied fellowship with God. They found nothing through their sin and they lost everything. And so in order to keep man from taking from the tree of life, And living forever, verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. That language is very strong. It's not just kind of, hey, there's the door. It's throwing him out the door. He's expelled from the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove the man out at the east of the garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim, the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And so it becomes clear that what Adam and Eve have done, though there is hope, it's not undone yet. And it won't be undone quickly. They're not allowed back into the garden. They must bear the consequences. And so what should we learn from this? Well, first, as I said at the beginning, sin and death are intrusions into this world. It's not the way things are supposed to be. Which means evolution isn't true. But there's no way, in light of what the Bible says, to have sin and death before Adam and Eve. Secondly, that we need to remember that our greatest joy is found, as one person said, not in being like God, but being with God. And serving God. And because of our sin, we have lost that joy. And yet, in this passage, we see a promise of hope. That there is a curse. And that one day, someone will come and deal with this curse. That the sorrow that Adam was promised, Christ knew as a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. That the thorns that grew up from this curse were twisted as a crown of thorns and put on his head. As Adam had to work with sweat, that Christ sweat great drops of blood in the garden. As Adam had to return to the dust, that Christ died for our sins. As Galatians 3 puts it, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. And so, yes, as Romans 8 points out, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And one day, this world that is cursed will no longer be cursed. Revelation 22.3 tells us there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to see 
the significance of our sin. Or as we deal with the consequences of the fall, as we experience the frustrations, the pain, the sorrow, that there would be part of us that would recognize and reflect on the fact that in some ways these are the results of our sin. That we are bearing perhaps not the immediate judgment of specific sins, the general judgment of humanity's sins that would cause us to long for the day in which sin and death and the curse will be no more. We pray this in our Savior Christ's name. Amen.